dear listeners welcome to episode 5 of thinking psychologist in all these four episodes you saw that we have spoken to couple of the top psychologists across the globe including three of them coming from usa itself one of them is speaking about the state of flow second one talking about how our mind deceives us in every state and the third person that we spoke to to spoke to us about how to achieve the state of flow really fast then we went across to all the way across all the continents and we reached hong kong to speak to a clinical psychologist who was talking about what does liberation and nirvana feels like and further up we spoke to a a, a designer who in um, in uh, red redding uk who spoke to us about uh, the the there's nothing like this rational decision making and our emotion drive all the decisions it's like a big elephant that our emotion is and our rational mind is just a small uh, pilot sitting on top of that elephant and it's and it's hard to drive the elephant everywhere unless until you train your mind with that said and if something has brought you to episode 5 you you would already know that this podcast series is adding value to to your life as well as you like the discussions here continuing the the series here we have a really interesting discussion planned today today with us is michel diamond who is the author of darwin's apple the evolutionary biology of religion book michel comes from united states and brings in a lot of experience in terms of psychology religion atheism as well as understanding the human brain mind in terms of consciousness so without further ado i welcome michel to the show and uh, i would i would hey uh, hi mish welcome to the show and thank you ash thanks for inviting me my uh, my audience would really like to know something about your journey your life and a little bit of introduction please sure well my journey is a little bit um unusual i did get a degree a bachelor's degree in biology and then i ended up going into the business world or work world instead of going for my post uh postgraduate degrees but i always had this interest in psychology and human behavior and human evolution and uh i i had that as a teenager when i first read the book the the naked ape by desmond moore which turned me on to the idea that humans were animals first and foremost which was fairly even though it's not seemingly that unusual it it, it it struck me as being a very different uh point of view at the time so when i went to college i kept that was the direction i was going was to study human biology and human psychology even though i was strictly a biology major and uh i ended up mostly working in the field of uh pharmacology and uh medical devices as a technical writer so that was my career but in the meantime i kept up this avocation of interest in human psychology and human evolution and uh along the way i figured it came to me that one of the the most unusual gaps in knowledge about humanity was religion that that there was no good answer as to why humans had religion and so i thought i would look into this and i did and i came up with some ideas and that's what ended up going into the book but it also informed me a lot about things like consciousness as well and so all this research that i did which was pretty extensive has led me to this point 
Ah, super. Thanks for that brief intro, Mitch. Uh, looks like your early years of entering into the psychology field is uh, is very much what I am doing now. Because I am also in my work life and slowly getting into psychology and that's it's it's really interesting to have you and and thank you for coming to the show now starting with the discussion mesh uh, mesh and uh, i i want to start with a question i want to start with a question is that since you have studied the human psychology what can you tell us about the thoughts that enter our mind and how do they govern our consciousness and our and our daily life and how does it impact our behavior what are your thoughts about this Well, first what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a quote from V.S. Ramachandran, who is a neuroscientist who works in San Diego, California. And he wrote a book called A Short History of Consciousness, or A Brief History of Consciousness. And on the very first page he says, your conscious life in short is nothing but an elaborate post hoc rationalization of things you really do for other reasons. So he's saying that our our consciousness is sort of a a a rationalization something that comes after we do we act we think but that thinking is as we you've talked about on your podcast several times it's unconscious mostly and so when it when things reach consciousness it's like a reporter it's like it's like if you're watching sports on TV and the the announcers telling you what's happening you already know what's happening you've seen it already and he's just repeating it to you and that's what consciousness is so when we live our life when we have our day-to-day existence and we have consciousness it's it's telling us what's going on we already know what's going on you don't need consciousness absolutely but it it helps a lot it comes in and says it sort of is like feedback it says i'm confirming or i'm telling you what i think is going on at the same time as you're having these unconscious experiences so are you, are you hinting towards the inner voice that we have in our head is it is it same as consciousness is that the one you are hinting towards well consciousness is difficult for, to define certainly there's a lot of people who have been working on that guys like ned block and um uh, uh crick uh, francis crick who the late francis crick and um lots lots of different people and they all come up with various ways of interpreting it i know you've talked about antonio damasio in past podcasts and he has his own ideas of consciousness uh one of the the, the ones i like the best is by uh gerald edelman uh, a neuroscientist who won the nobel prize for his work and uh he he talks about it at at a, at a neuronal level He talks about these reentrant pathways that go between the frontal cortex and the thalamus and I'm I don't we don't need to get into these kinds of details what he's saying is that there's there's this repeat repeating kinds of signals going back and forth and he believes that the repetition of these signals between the frontal cortex and the, the thalamus deeper in the brain creates these states what we call consciousness these the ways of holding on to concepts ideas thinking it it creates in a, a kind of uh, shall we say temporary permanence of concepts that we can hold on to and then play with in our brains in our minds so 
that's for me that's the way i like to think about it mm-hmm. it helps me to to visualize a way to say what is consciousness and what's it what's it really doing um you know you've talked about the monkey mind in the past how we have thoughts and they go around and around and sometimes these thoughts can be a problem they're noise they um they they manifest in different ways in different people but we hear this inner voice that you're talking about and so that's one way that we can talk about it but it, there's other ways we can talk about it as well so yes the inner voice is one of those things that that is identified as a kind uh, is how we represent consciousness when we talk about it aha uh-huh, okay now i i totally understand because you know everyone and everything that i've been reading as well online everyone has been saying that it's really difficult to tell you what consciousness is is everyone owns personal experience what the consciousness is all about so much coming towards the consciousness and if we just take the example of inner voice as one particular you know aspect of the consciousness mindfulness meditation practices have enabled people to calm their mind and when the when the calmness when the calmness happen and there is a silence in your head in a sort of uh, the way the noise that's happening in your head also dies down and you know slows down does it have an impact on our consciousness well i would say that is impacting the consciousness when you say it's quiet in the inner voice that is quiet in consciousness absolutely and and uh, actually for me a very big point it's a big idea that we want to do that 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 there's a goal among people and meditation is one of the big ways that people do that where they quiet that inner voice they're actually quieting their consciousness that's right i agree <clears throat> in one of your posts that i you know read and in which it was saying that mindfulness meditation yoga and everything is is much hyped about as of now but the reality is is little bit different in some what way Can you can you shed some more light on that topic? You're, you're saying it's hyped. Can you elaborate what that means? So, you know, we see a sort of a mindfulness revolution that happening in the western world now. Um in terms of uh, we see, you know, the gurus coming up and telling you that mindfulness is a way to, you know, transform your mind, transform your brain and then people adapting to yoga and not really knowing which aspect which direction this is going and and the couple of interactions and the reading that i have been if this meditation aspect per se is not handled carefully it also leads to a lot of trouble where you know the calmness also of the mind can lead to the zombification of the person as well where your emotions die down and then you react to the world changes that's <laughs> well let, let's back up a bit first of all where did um meditation and yoga come from and of course they came from what 2500 3000 years ago in india or or southern asia right and uh the buddha is presumably maybe the first or one of the earliest people or at least the one who got some attention that was recorded in in some of the documents in the um uh, uh well i i i'm not an expert in uh, hindu religion or philosophy so i i don't want to speak inappropriately but um the fact is 
these practices have been going on for a very long time. And certainly what yoga and meditation are in the Western world is very different than what it was and is presumably still in, in, uh, for Hindu and, and Buddhism, where I know yoga is, um, it's very deeply spiritual. And there's a lot of aspects to yoga, different yogic practices, and they are, um, there, there's a lot more going on there than simply doing these stretches and breathing exercises. Now, that's very religious in its origins. And of course, as you point out, it's come to the United and other Western countries, and it's been stripped for the most part that spirituality. And now it's, yes, you simply go and you do the stretches and you do and concentrate on your breathing, but it still does at least a part of what it's intended to do, which is to quiet the consciousness, quiet the, the busy monkey mind. And by the way, I, I think when we call it monkey mind, it's, it's an insult to monkeys. But since that's the common <laughs> phrase for it, uh, we'll, we'll continue to use it, even though I think... I, I'm not really convinced that the monkeys have that kind of mind. It's really the human mind that is very busy and kind of kind of overactive. But in any case, um, so yeah, so what, what, what it tells me is that humans have this desire in general to alter their consciousness. Now, in the case of meditation and yoga, you're trying to quiet it, calm it. We can eventually talk about some of the other aspects of spirituality, which are a bit different than, than yoga and meditation. But certainly in this case, yes, you're trying to, to quiet the mind. Now, as far as does it have negative consequences because people aren't actually practicing it necessarily according to its origins, to its spiritual origins. Mm -hmm. it's it's hard to know i my my feeling is that if, if people can find something that they feel makes their life better that if they can quiet their minds that if they're they feel their minds are too busy too noisy that it's interfering with their ability to to live a a good full life then it's a good thing it's better than than not I, it's always possible and certainly we know it happens that charlatans take advantage of people mm. uh, and they might do it through these religious practices. And there's certainly of so-called gurus who have come to the United States and created sects or cults. And some of those cults have been turned out to be rather problematic and, and not good for the people. But it doesn't, it, it didn't mean that it had to be, uh, you know, an Indian guru. I mean, obviously there's, there's cases of people who do this from all backgrounds and sometimes they're religious and sometimes they're not. You have um, famous Jim Jones who, who led uh, his people to mass suicide in Guyana, what, 25 years ago, have, uh, um, uh, Scientology, which I think is a, is quite a, a big problem, and so you know, Scientology is a very pseudo-religious kind of thing, and uh, but people are, are always susceptible to uh, 
to people, to others who want to take advantage of them. And oftentimes it's political. And we're certainly experiencing constant political problems with people with with would be dictators who would like to to take over and uh, be uh, well you know we don't want to get political but it, it happens to people at all levels and so it's, it could be a potential problem through spirituality and through meditation and yoga but I think the overall benefit is is clearly there and and we sh- we we need to uh, to promote that as a as a means for people who who need to quiet their minds now Mitch you know once you know another aspect that you know I've been thinking about as well it's it's when it comes to quieting down the mind you know does quieting down the mind means that we would be really in control of our mind will it be us taking those decisions because uh, you know we have seen and what happens in these split brain experiments the the one half doesn't know the other half and so the fundamental question arises that uh, are, is there a hidden personality or a hidden person sitting inside our head who is just you know sort of uh, giving us giving us false direction and making us feel that we are in control or is it some something bigger than that there's two things here one is yes there's a hidden person inside us no, it's not giving us false information. It's giving us our information. So who are we? We are an unconscious being who has this thing called consciousness. Another way of looking at it is self-awareness. There's another aspect that people like to use to identify consciousness. So a very small amount of what goes on in us reaches awareness, consciousness. And we can say, oh, I know what, you know, I know something that happened. And, and, but most of what goes on, we're not aware of inside of us. But it's not false. Part of the, the problem is that people want to believe that, that they should be a certain way, that they should achieve certain things, they should have certain moral characters. There's all kinds of goals that people set for themselves. And so then they 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 judge themselves against that goal and so if they aren't doing something towards that goal then they're bad or they're they're doing something wrong or they're false or whatever that's kind of a different problem we are who we are we can be different there's ways that we can work towards improving ourselves if that is our goal and certainly meditation i think is one of those ways but at a certain point, we are overthinking and part of our consciousness, it's really in our consciousness to a degree that is saying what we should be, what is our goal. As animals first, the only, at, at another level, if we're looking at it at the level of animals, our only goal is to be evolutionarily successful. And all that means is we reproduce and have offspring that are fertile themselves. That's the most basic biological way of thinking. Now, we don't like to think that way as humans because we have consciousness and higher thoughts and goals and ideals and all these other things. We want to think that we're animals or we don't want to think that we have to behave like animals, that we can behave 
at a higher level. Well, that's a whole philosophical discussion. But all I'm, I want to say that we are still animals. We still, for the most part, act in ways that are evolutionarily beneficial to ourselves. We want to survive. We want to do the things that are necessary. Most people want to reproduce. People are now able to not to do so. And, and more and more people are saying, I don't want to have children. That's a conscious decision. Okay. But most people are not like that. Most people still want to have children. And even those who don't want to have children, they act biologically, which is that they want to have sex. And now we, they at least can control whether the children are the result of that, but they're still acting biologically. So part of the problem is just to sort of return to where we started, the idea of having having false ideas is is difficult because it's assuming a judgment. It's assuming that there's something out there that says what is right and wrong, what is true and false. That's philosophical. That's a different issue. And again, we can talk philosophically, but that's not really what we're talking about today. So uh, people people do things that comes from their unconscious, which are ultimately tied to genetics. The parts of genetics that drive our behavior. Obviously, a lot of our behavior is not driven directly by genetics, and that's one of the key traits that humans have different from most other animals, is that we're not tied to our instincts like most other animals. Nevertheless, we are still mostly animals, we are animals, 100%. But our big mind, our big brains, um, give us some opportunities and freedom to to act other than what uh, uh, you might say animals would normally do, 100%. Uh, yes, very much. Thank, thanks, Mesh. I was recently, just to you know add to another point here, I was recently reading through one of the texts and where the the topic of evolution came so we as human beings have been living in you know in jungle and our our natural selection of our consciousness has been developed to be always aware of what threats are going to attack us so we are always constantly aware and we tend to exaggerate the problem which we perceive is going to come now that the society has involved rather than living in small villages inside the jungle we are living in big cities but still, once the human perceive a threat, I believe the level of perception of that threat is still that high. And that actually causes the, the anxiety, the stress that is very prevalent. You know, what are your th- thoughts on that? That's right. Uh, anxiety is one of the things, just, just like depression. It's, it's one of these characteristics that we identify as being perhaps due to our consciousness and that do we really perceive threat accurately? And there's a lot of evidence, a lot of, of scientific studies have been done to show that we don't perceive threat very accurately. Sometimes there really is threat, sometimes there's not. A good example is uh, people who have fear of flying. So the statistics show that flying is much more safe than driving, at least probably in in countries where there's a lot of people in a big city. 
But um, but of course, they have a fear of flying, and, and I can understand that. I mean, you're up in the air, and you feel like, well, if, you know, if the plane has a problem, you're going to die. It's going to fall out of the sky. But the reality is not there. So that's just one example of how people misperceive actual threat. Uh, another aspect of that is that humans have cognitive biases. This is uh, well under, and uh, you can Wikipedia, for example, and it'll show you a list of about 200 different cognitive biases that have been identified by psychologists. And um, so, what's my point? Kind of lost my train of thought there. Oh well, it's just that they. they so one of the, the one of the biases is called representative representativeness, which is a fancy way of saying uh, it, it, it's uh, prejudice, it's xenophobia. Mm-hmm. So turns out that even in a very integrated society, like theoretically like the United States, where you have a lot of different cultures who've come from all over the world, people still have unconscious bias and fear of the strangers, of the others, of people who don't look like themselves. And this has been well shown again in various studies. So that we, at least a lot of Americans, try their hardest to to be non-judgmental and to at least accept people who don't look like themselves and might have other cultural backgrounds. And yet, even those people can be shown in experiments to have implicit bias, that they have an unconscious reaction to people who don't look like themselves or who who dress differently or somehow they, they can't identify with in some obvious way. And, and it's, it's also part of the fact that when we look at people, we have immediate first impressions unconsciously. We immediately make judgments about people. It's just our nature. People do this now. At the same time, this can cause a lot of thoughts, anxieties, fears unconsciously. It's a difficult problem. This is how people are. This is something that they evolved. So uh, there's a lot of ways that people are unable to, or, or makes it more of a challenge for people to deal with these unconscious attitudes, uh, expectations. And so you talk about people in cities having higher anxieties. Well, it's it's not necessarily just in cities. It, it can be anywhere and everywhere. It's perhaps the case that they run into other people who look different than themselves a lot more, and maybe that has something to do with it. But there's all kinds of ways that people have anxiety. Another way that's a uh, one of my favorites is freedom of choice. So in our modern societies, we are given all kinds of consumer choices. There's a hundred different TVs that we can choose from. There's a hundred, you know, hundreds of different cars and, and different, whatever we want. And you can go on the internet and there's a hundred more of whatever you're looking for. How do you make choices? And so, uh, one of my favorite studies is, is by uh, Sheena Iyengar, who wrote The Art of Choosing. She was, uh, 
she did this famous study about the jam jar choices. Do you know that one? No, no, no. So, so they, on one Saturday on the weekend, they went into a, a grocery store with permission and set up a table and they put out six different flavors of jam and they offered the people the opportunity to taste any of them or all of them. And then after that, they gave a coupon to the person and then the coupon would be given at the cashier and then they would know if the person bought something. The next weekend they came in and they put out 24 different jam flavors and said, you can taste any or all of them. And then they gave the person a coupon to buy the jam. The question is, which day did the people buy more jam? The six jam choices or the 24 jam choices? Mm -hmm. It was the six jam choices people significantly bought more of the jam. So the point is, too many choices have a disincentivizing effect on people. It overwhelms their poor brains because we really don't have all the cognitive ability to make these kinds of choices. People are overwhelmed by all the opportunities that are out there. People want someone to kind of give them direction they they want limited choices because they don't have the cognitive skills to deal with it too much information we're overloaded yeah another aspect of anxiety so there's all these different ways that we deal with the various kinds of assaults to our consciousness and uh, and so this is why people need to continue to look for ways to, to deal with it, to quiet it. Write it down, yeah. So, you know, in, in your book, The Darwin's Apple and the Evolution, so some of the aspects that you spoke about, are you covering that in the book as well? What, what, are, oh, what, all, other, what all other aspects does your book cover? What, what makes it interesting for our listeners to go ahead and pick up the book from Amazon? So for the first... Well, from chapters, uh, you know, the first chapter is kind of an introduction, an overall look of what's what you're going to get. <clears throat> but in the uh, second through fourth chapters, it really is about consciousness. And I talk about the split brain and I talk about choosing and I talk about, um, well, eventually, by when you get to chapter four, this is where it really talks about the problem of consciousness. So we've been talking about and you've talked to your other guests on your podcast about the problems of consciousness, about the monkey mind. What I find is that people are aware, they're, they're, they understand, a lot of people understand that the human brain is busy and noisy and, and we have biases and, and we have anxieties and depression. But, but what I don't hear people saying is that there is a real issue here, the evolution of the human brain is, is this wonderful experiment where you have consciousness which actually does help people do wonderful things and create this wonderful civilization and technologies and make our lives better in so many ways. And at the same time, consciousness has downsides. It has drawbacks. These problems that we've been talking about, these are endemic to humanity and it's a problem. So. I talk about that in the first, well, the, the second through four chapters, the problems of consciousness. And I say that this is, this is 
this is a, an endemic issue for humanity. Mm-hmm. Then I flip over and I say, well, I've already introduced the idea of, of how this ties to, to religion. For me, religion for the individual, not religion of the, uh, the, the gods and, and the church and the, the hierarchy. It's just that the inner experience of religion for people, the purpose of it, is to quiet the conscious mind. But not always quiet it. It's to alter consciousness. Quieting, calming consciousness is one of the ways that religion does that. But it does it in a lot of other ways as well. We can talk about that too. And so I talk, and the other thing that, that religion does a lot is that it, it, uh, it brings up emotions. So emotions are the biological features that historically in animals drive their behavior, or or at least are very important in driving their behavior. And emotions are based on genetically derived uh, systems in the body, between the nervous system and the endocrine system, mostly. But the whole body is, is, is... engaged in emotional activity and so religion by and large religious behavior engenders emotions as it also alters consciousness so that's that's the the basic idea of the book so then i talk about rituals and i talk about emotions but mostly rituals after i talk about consciousness because rituals are the behaviors of religion and behaviors are things that you can study biologically. Whereas most people like to think of religion in terms of beliefs. Beliefs, certainly beliefs are important to religion, but people have beliefs about a lot of stuff. They have scientific beliefs even. They have social beliefs. They have uh, political beliefs. They have b- beliefs about all kinds of stuff. So belief is something that is a lot greater than just religion. And when you talk, most people talk about religious belief, they're not talking about what belief, the function of belief is in humans. So they're sort of skipped over a lot of, of stuff. So belief for me is something that is secondary. Sure, it's part of religion, but if we want to understand the basics of religion, first we have to look at behavior and evolution. And so then I look at what are the, the behaviors of of ritual of religious behavior well i end up talking about there's a lot of things like rites of passage and sacrifice and all kinds of stuff but rites of passage means a lot of different things and sacrifice can be a lot of different things depending on what culture you come from but i i like to think that there are certain universal rituals that people engage in for religious behaviors and the ones i list are music dance, mythology, um, prayer, and art. And those mm-hmm. are the ones I focus on. There, As I said, there's others, but those are the ones that when you see them, you pretty much know that's what it is. When someone makes music, you can identify it. Whereas a lot of other kinds of, of ritual behaviors, well, a lot of the ritual behaviors use all these different aspects in various combinations. So one example is the, um, the mask dance of Bali, the island in the South Pacific. And they actually make masks, which are art, 
and they dance and they sing and they tell a story of their ancestors. So they're pretty much combining everything. Um, so and that's that's the the pretty much the 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 third ha- the third of the book the last third of the book is going through these different ritual behaviors and talking about how they're beneficial. Certainly, music is well known to to engage in the emotional systems. It's probably the best studied in that way. But they also find that in hospital settings, playing music to patients, say postoperatively helps them require less painkillers, helps them recover faster. And, uh, and dance is, is known to help people, say, who have Parkinson's disease, where their motor control is compromised. They engage in dance therapy, and they can actually have periods where their, their symptoms are reduced, their shaking symptoms are reduced. So they all, and by the way, there, there are therapies, there, there is art therapy. There is an organization in the United States that promotes art therapy and there's music therapy and dance therapy. All these therapies exist. So there's just coincidentally, it turns mm-hmm. out, all these ways that these kinds of ritual behaviors, what were once considered ritual behaviors and still are, they've been, they've been utilized in different ways but have the uh, purpose of helping people heal or or deal with various kinds of problems that they have. So that's kind of the structure of the book. Ah, okay. And you know, what would be the one key takeaway for the readers of your book? One. <laughs> well, <laughs> the the basic point, the basic idea is that religion is is genetically has genetic uh, a, a genetic basis we have genetic predispositions to have religious practices and what that means is we have genetic basis to engage in religious like rituals these things that we do now listening to music or going to a dance they don't have the same kind of religious connotation that they did when they first evolved just like yoga and meditation in the United States do not have the same kind of spiritual um, basis that they that they evolved originally but they still do the same function that they did originally which is to alter consciousness understood so Clear. did I give you one idea I might have given you a few ideas but I, yeah, I think it yeah, was like basic idea you know what what in in you know in a nutshell what i got was is you know uh, so the the whole sequence of thoughts uh thoughts emotions and then the behavior and in a way you're saying is that the the driven behavior and the emotions if you take a step back there are the beliefs the religious beliefs are the ones who are driving that emotion and which are leading to the action that an individual would take and that's how it has what what i would rather say is it's the religious behaviors that drive it that drive the emotions it's it's if we think about where religion evolved in hunter gatherers tens of thousands of years ago rituals did they have well the way we we think about it is anthropologists studied the the existing hunter gatherers from 100 years ago or 150 years ago 
they kind of don't exist in a pure form much anymore, but at least we have those observations. And we saw them dancing. They would, they had various kinds of dances for different kinds of uh, ritual purposes, whether it was to ask for rain and, and for the crops to be strong or for strength in uh, war, if that was what was necessary, or as part of the rites of passage for the young men and women. Uh, and they they danced and they made music and they chanted and and they had mythologies and so where where the stories come in where the beliefs come in is through the mythologies and, and I talk about the mythologies but I, I uh, again it's the mythology is is a means to to get people to uh, change their consciousness. To, when you hear a story, when you watch a movie, when you read a book, you're transported away from your normal consciousness. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, I, and I some people... Mythology is, mythology is all storytelling that you are mentioning because we as a humans only understand stories and and once the religious preachings are told in a way of the stories, it becomes it becomes a completely different uh, ballgame altogether. And people get it really right. fast. So there's one study that I have in my book, and I talk about actually in, in the articles online that you saw. Um, they 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 did a survey of people and said, "Tell us about your religious beliefs," and the people would write it down. Then they would present these people with a story that was well, a story. Let's call it like the Ramayana, which is very different than saying this is uh, our doctrine. This is, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and and this is, you know, what the laws, what the rules of religion are. Very different aspects, very different ways of presenting religious ideas. And then they would ask people about their religious feelings and beliefs after that. And what they found was that people have very different religious ideas depending on how you present the information to them. So their understanding of religion when you tell them a story, it's very different than their understanding of religion. When you tell them the doctrine, when you tell them the rules and the laws, and and what these researchers felt and and said is that there can be contradictory their religious beliefs. They're inconsistent. They don't really understand, and people would admit that they don't necessarily understand their religion very well. So the whole belief thing, that's what, one of the reasons why I don't really focus on beliefs per se, is because they don't even understand their own beliefs most of the time. And then, in fact, people argue about their beliefs in any case. You know, you have one sect over here and one sect of Christians over there, and they're arguing about these minuscule things. They all believe in Jesus as their savior. But, you know, was Mary sacred or was Mary, what was her role? And she is she incorporated into the into the ritual and argue about all kinds of stuff. So belief could they people believe everything. It doesn't doesn't really tell you anything of value. Only that they have belief. And that's right. when I talk about Super Super Mitch, you know, I think we are running short of time as well. As we already know that the human listening span and the attention span is slowly, slowly decreasing. So, you know, sure. I generally try I generally try to stay, you know, till 4, 40, 45 minutes if it really catches the audience attention. Anything above that, I don't think so. No one is going to listen to the rest of the show as long as it's, you know, 
with that i know i would like to i would like to conclude this discussion of this episode 5 of the podcast with uh, uh, with couple of couple of things that i have been doing as well in my daily life about practicing mindfulness meditation on a daily basis and what i have pers- i have found is that you know the slowing down of the mind and looking at the thoughts very clearly and then sort of attaining that wisdom where i'm able to filter the thoughts and only take the positive ones in is actually creating a, a lot of difference in in my in my personal life and hopefully I, i will urge on my listeners to you know strongly practice meditation and change their lives as well so in today's discussion we we got mish to be talking about what consciousness is all about and what his book says about the human evolution and how stress and anxiety and our ability to perceive the perceive the threat is is largely faulted with that any you know we'll take closing remarks from Mitch and say goodbye to each other well i appreciate you having